This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, talk a little bit about um, uh, heart disease and stroke in Asians. And so I just wanted to point out to you that uh, what happened was uh, when we were setting up the lecture series, uh, Diana chose the um, uh, title for me. Uh, and I said, well, we can't be quite all that emphatic. So I added a little question mark at the end. Uh, so we can uh, show you the data and you can make a decision uh, as to whether it is truly on the rise uh, or uh, is there just a, a, a question that we need to delve into a little more about uh, uh, what the status of that uh, this disease state is. And so uh, as uh, Don was mentioning, I'm actually a, a third generation San Franciscan. Uh, and so when I came into practice, my father had graduated from UCSF. Uh, my older sister had graduated from uh, UCSF um, in the School of Pharmacy. Then my next uh, uh, older sister graduated from the School of Medicine. My brother was in uh, the School of Medicine at the time I said, and then it was up to me to decide where I wanted to go. And I said, do I have a choice? <laughs> so, so I was the third one in line. But then when I came out, uh, you know, it was actually um, uh, a decision uh, deciding as to uh, what would I do and would I be busy enough? Because uh, at that time in Chinatown, um, because of uh, health care insurance and, and the, uh, uh, the poverty, uh, socioeconomic uh, uh, status situation, uh, we actually had uh, recommendations for new young doctors coming out. Uh, and it was always, you need one foot in Chinatown and one foot out. Uh, so that you can actually uh, have enough patient mix so you can make a living. So I wanted to uh, basically uh, be uh, very busy, and I wanted to take care of patients, uh, so I, I chose uh, cardiology. And uh, indeed, uh, it is uh, the uh, most uh, uh, common cause of death uh, in the uh, Chinese uh, population, and I'll show you some data uh, to uh, support that. Um, okay. Um, so uh, we have to give these uh, slides to say that we do not have any financial disclosures. The only conflict is that I am Asian, uh, so I will be giving a talk about this uh, topic. Uh, so the most recent statistics uh, that are available from the American Heart Association are the heart and stroke uh, statistics uh, update in 2020, uh, the trends in cardiovascular disease in the United States, uh, and then in cardiovascular disease and uh, selective uh, state by, uh, by ethnicity, and then cardiovascular disease in general uh, in the Asian population and stroke. So um, uh, these uh, are the particular options, uh, op uh, topics that we're going to talk about, hopefully. Okay, so uh, the first slide I wanted to show you was um, uh, uh, data from uh, 2017 from the uh, uh, Centers for uh, Disease Control and the National uh, Health Statistics uh, Center. Uh, and this is basically males and females and the leading cause of death. Now, this is a little bit... Um, uh, 
a slide that actually requires a lot of uh, uh, unpacking because although you can see here that uh, heart disease is listed as number one for men, uh, cancer is number two uh, for men, uh, then three, four, five uh, is stroke. Uh, and then uh, down here, uh, six is diabetes, and then uh, uh, seven, eight, nine is uh, influenza. Now, if we just said we're only interested in heart disease, then we would look here. But what have we learned um, is that people who have cancer actually have take medicines that can adversely affect the heart. It has gotten to be such a problem that within cardiology, we have actually developed an entirely new subspecialty that deals with cancer patients uh, because of their effects on the heart. How many people have heard of the uh, new uh, immunomodulators where the, they make medications that uh, allow the body to target the specific cancer? Well, one of the things that we've learned about those is that those immunomodulators can actually attack normal muscle. Uh, and so the heart is a muscle. So we've had patients who've had bad uh, uh, pericarditis, myocarditis, uh, and they come in in, in florid uh, uh, heart failure and very dramatic. Uh, uh, there are medicines for cancer that basically uh, destroy the heart muscle. Uh, so we have to limit those. Uh, you see them very commonly used in patients with uh, leukemia or breast cancer. Uh, and so they have to very carefully watch the dose. They have to watch the heart muscle very carefully. So, so cancer uh, is, even though it's number two, uh, is something that we also consider a major source of heart disease. Now, we have stroke all the way out here uh, for men, uh, but in fact, uh, with the American Heart Association saying that 90% uh, of stroke has the exact same cause as we see for heart disease. So it's what's called ischemic strokes. That's basically where the arteries develop plaques inside, uh, and uh, at any time they can rupture. Uh, how we treat it uh, is exactly the same. You know, you've heard of the clockbuster medicines. If you can get into the hospital uh, within a certain number of, of hours, um, and they can... Um, uh, uh, take a look at you uh, and treat you at a center, uh, they can actually reverse all of the uh, uh, neurologic deficits of a stroke. So I will talk a little bit about the different kinds of stroke later on because this is the most common currently in the United States, not so much for the Asian population, okay? Uh, and then diabetes here. Uh, although it's listed and everyone has heard about diabetes, uh, one of the things that is least talked about uh, is that in the 80s and 90s, there were a series of research articles, uh, mainly from uh, uh, the Danish uh, uh, cohort. And what they saw, found was that if you take a bunch of diabetic patients and you take a group of patients with heart disease, and you monitored them for the next four years, they had the same risk of having a, a, a death uh, from any cause, okay? And so 
for a long time that was given the label to diabetes as a cardiovascular disease equivalent. So that your risk of having uh, a cardiac event was just as high if you had diabetes without heart disease or heart disease, which already carries with it its own risk. So uh, in fact, if we were to look at this and say heart disease is number one, uh, then we say, well, with, with cancer, stroke, and diabetes. Now, is there any other thing within the top 10 that is also a major problem with heart disease? Okay, so usually Alzheimer's disease, um, not a whole lot we uh, can do about that uh, uh, with suicides. Um, and not much there. Uh, chronic liver disease and cirrhosis, uh, not much there. But influenza is actually another cause of hospitalizations. And most of the time, they come in with an exacerbation of their heart disease. So uh, about 10 years ago, the American Heart Association basically said, if you uh, are over age 65, um, that uh, you should get a flu vaccine every year to prevent a heart exacerbation, okay? So th this was considered to be one of the most preventative things that you can do uh, to prevent a heart problem. If, even if you didn't have it uh, or you have something that is well-controlled like high blood pressure or uh, uh, something like that. So, uh, so that's the thing there. Now, Women are actually in the same boat, although they're not quite as commonly uh, uh, in terms of percentage uh, for the first thing. But what you see here um, is that the second cause, again, is cancer. Um, uh, interestingly enough, for men, uh, the third cause of death is unintentional injury, so we're, we may be a little clumsy. Um, uh, but then uh, it's uh, lung disease for, for women. But then the fourth uh, category is actually stroke, okay? And then uh, uh, going down the line, diabetes is here and influenza is over here. So heart disease actually uh, makes up several categories of the top 10 uh, leading causes of death. And so I wanted to uh, make sure that everyone is aware that uh, it's not just heart disease alone. Now, when we look at the uh, statistics from the uh, vantage point of the American Heart Association that puts a lot of these statistics together, um, uh, they usually add heart disease and stroke. And so um, uh, in, instead of uh, cancer as secondary, they'll, they'll put these two together. So we will always, at least to this point, uh, be... Uh, considered a situation where it's number one leading cause of death. All right. Now, <clears throat> the next slide is actually uh, leading causes of death by age group. Uh, and so uh, when does heart disease actually start? And so within the top 10 causes of death in the youngest age group that we usually look at, you could see that heart disease is number four. So even at that age group, uh, we see heart disease as a major one and diabetes and stroke. Okay, so that combination of uh, diseases tend to go hand in hand. Um, and so you see that uh, no age less uh, or uh, beginning at 
uh, 25 is heart disease not considered one of the uh, leading causes of death. And so when we move up to uh, age 45 to 64, that actually happens to be an age where uh, cancer uh, is uh, coming along uh, uh, and uh, is very um, uh, common uh, in uh, uh, diseases. Uh, But you see that uh, heart disease then uh, jumps up to uh, position number two uh, and uh, diabetes and stroke uh, come back here. Um, and what you uh, see here is that uh, uh, influenza and pneumonia are actually not part of the top ten. Okay? So, um, now, what is significant about this age over uh, uh, 65? Because uh, uh, when statistics were started to be uh, gathered um, uh, and, and uh, up to the uh, 19. Uh, 40s and the 1950s, average lifespan was still only 65. So this, a lot of this stuff didn't even exist before uh, 1940, 1950. So, uh, so this is a whole uh, a new uh, category of uh, people that we're starting to look at more carefully. And uh, as you may have heard, uh, the uh, American and the, the national and the international uh, population are getting so that we have the fastest growing uh, demographic uh, in the world is the group over 85. Okay? So, um, when we look at that, uh, heart disease is number one, as I mentioned, cancer, uh, stroke uh, uh, there, uh, diabetes, uh, and then uh, influenza as another uh, particular problem. Finally, um, uh, let's take the oldest group, and then you can see here that heart disease actually increases. Um, I'll, I'll show you a little bit of information uh, why that's the case. Uh, but then, uh, uh, and then stroke uh, still remains uh, quite common, um, uh, and influenza. Uh, now, um, uh, I didn't mention exactly what the percentage of people with uh, diabetes that actually die of heart disease, but it's about 80%. Okay, so uh, the, the diabetes complications are not the usual cause of death for people with diabetes. And so we do consider it an equivalent to having heart disease uh, because that is the usual uh, modality. Okay? All right. Uh, so let's uh, take a look at this uh, next slide because uh, it's uh, an actually very interesting slide that um, uh, shows that heart disease was on the rise beginning in 1950, and it didn't seem to have an ending. It just seemed to be going straight up without any changes. Then at about 1970, you see this little dip, and it uh, tended to uh, kind of waver around at this point. Does anyone know what happened in 1970 that might have caused this? Okay, so think back uh, about that time, and that was when the uh, U.S. Surgeon General was starting to say, smoking is bad for you, right? They started to say, high blood pressure is not good for you, and so you should treat it. And so there was an initial uh, rally, so we should take care of this stuff, and you saw an immediate drop in the mortality uh, for uh, heart disease. 
And then it kind of where, and then what happened here? Then it started to take a big drop. So what happened in 1990? Does anyone remember? Okay, so, huh? The pyramid. The food pyramid. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about the food pyramid. Um, but uh, no, that wasn't. Okay. Um, close. That was when they actually developed cholesterol-lowering medications. You heard statins. Uh, so we had a big project to actually uh, teach uh, physicians and patients and everything about what is the ideal cholesterol, right? And then we said there's a medication now that has very low side effects uh, and is very effective in lowering cholesterol, and wow, everything just started to drop. Okay? Now, if we look back at this curve for heart disease, Okay, and we go all the way back to 1900. There was only one year where it was not the leading cause of death. Does anyone know what that year is and why? 1918. 1918, excellent. And the reason was? Yes, it was the flu. Okay, so, you know, we were worried about... Uh, we're not worried about it. It was actually a very bad thing. Uh, the the uh, flu overtook uh, the United States population as the leading cause of death for that one year. And then once they started to get that uh, taken care of, then it became uh, heart disease again. So um, you could see here that cancer... Uh, as the number two cause of death, uh, especially in the uh, 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 middle age and uh, average population uh, is first and second cause. You can see that that's on the rise and it doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Here's the one thing that is worrying every single public health uh, person who's involved with heart disease. You see here that it seems to be coming down great. People are cutting their smoking, they're eating their taking their medicines, they're watching their cholesterol, they're doing all the right things, but all of a sudden in 2010, it stops going down. Not only that, it's starting to rise. Okay? So, this little rise for this three years is enough to make all the public health officials worry that we are losing ground on managing heart disease and as well as that stroke and diabetes. Okay, so let's look a little bit more at uh, some of the uh, data uh, from different sources. And if we look at the, uh, age 45 to 64, we see in that particular patient group, uh, and we look over uh, the last uh, 18 years from 1999 to 2017, that cancer is dropping, heart disease is dropping, but... Uh, again, uh, in 2010, uh, there just seems to be a leveling off of that decline. Okay? So where is that leveling off coming from? Okay? We still have the same medicine. We have even better statins now than we did before. We have uh, better uh, treatments for uh, uh, heart disease. Um, uh, so why is it tapering off? Okay. Now, we uh, separate that into men and women. We could see for men, uh, the cancer uh, rates are, act uh, death rates are actually dropping. 
men again uh, coming down and then around 2010 it takes a corner and it just flattens out it's even starting to go up a little bit higher um, women uh, also coming down uh, going up uh, after flattening out but not quite as dramatically as in men now uh, so let's look uh, at the reason why you all came here. Uh, well, how does this affect uh, Asian Pacific Islanders? And we could see that if we look at the population uh, by ethnicity uh, and we break it up into the four major ethnic groups that they usually put uh, uh, on the uh, census, but now they're getting a little bit better about um, uh, breaking it down into even uh, more discrete uh, populations. You could see that uh, the white non-Hispanic population uh, was what we considered to be uh, the standard, not so much because um, they had uh, a classic amount of disease, but because they were just the majority population in most centers. Right. I mean, uh, United States, uh, California is one of the um, very few states where um, the white population is not a majority anymore. Right. They're they're only 49 percent. So um, uh, so this uh, would not be quite the same. But the the ratio uh, of uh, a disease uh, in that setting is um, uh, pretty much uh, similar uh, in these uh, things. So uh, here's the non-Hispanic white population that we consider to be uh, the um, the standard uh, uh, mortality uh, from the, the disease because of the majority. And then you can see that the non-Hispanic uh, black population actually has a significantly higher incidence of uh, cardiac disease. The Hispanic population is slightly less and look at the Asian Pacific Islanders. Uh, uh, they're actually quite low. Now, everybody's known somebody who's had a heart uh, attack or, or heart problems uh, and stroke. And so uh, you wonder whether uh, that is real or it just happened to be uh, the place uh, or this timing uh, that we saw a decrease without any uh, uh, splaying out. So we'll try to look at that even a little more carefully. So where did this change come from for cancer and um, heart disease? And so if we look back at some of the uh, statistics on the statewide basis, we can see that cancer was rising and rising, and then it actually crossed heart disease as a leading cause of death in the Hispanic population. Now, what else do you notice about this? This actually occurred well before we saw that change. It occurred in 2008. Okay, so uh, this is actually a fairly significant finding. Now, when we look at this curve for the heart disease for the Hispanic population, it doesn't drop. It stays the same, and then cancer just went up. Okay, so in fact, heart disease may not be decreasing. It may actually be the same, and cancer is just getting more common. Now, what was eye-opening to me was that same change over here occurred in the Asian population eight years before that. Okay, so in 2000, uh, heart disease uh, in selected states was actually uh, even with cancer, and then it became the second leading cause of death. 
uh, in um, those particular states. So I always like to say Asians lead the way. This is not the way we want to go. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but then uh, we see that uh, for heart disease, again, there was no decrease. Okay? It stayed the same. It's just that in the total volume of people, and um, uh, even though uh, uh, his, um, Asians are considered uh, among the fastest growing uh, minority population, it still is 4 to 5% of the national population. So numbers are, are usually hard to, to get by. So if we look at all the states uh, in California, uh, and we, oh no, in the United States, um, so I'm so California centric, right? You could tell. All right, the only thing between us and Washington, D.C. is nothing. Um, so <laughs> uh, so uh, there are only two states where cancer was the leading cause of death in both 2000 and 2014, and that was in Minnesota and Alaska. Okay? Now, in those states, uh, pretty much similar to what I had showed you uh, in the previous slide, where cancer is now the leading cause of death, uh, in 2014, but in 2000, heart disease was, you could see those are all the blue states. Not politically blue, just happened to be blue. Okay, so um, uh, we have uh, these states, uh, pretty much uh, coastal states, except until we get out to uh, Colorado, Kansas, and Nebraska, where uh, we see that uh, uh, cancer is actually overtaking heart disease. And then uh, those states where heart disease was the leading cause of death in both 2000 and 2014 were all these uh, green states. Uh, so um, uh, they're uh, either um, uh, changing uh, closely but didn't quite make it. Um, and so I'll, I'll show you uh, some of that uh, data as well. So I just picked a state at random to show you uh, for um, uh, uh, Asian uh, Pacific Islanders um, that uh, so uh, New Mexico was one of those states where uh, cancer is now considered uh, the leading cause of death um, uh, but then heart disease now is just right next to stroke and then right behind that uh, is uh, diabetes uh, and again uh, we have that uh, uh, influenza which all contribute uh, to heart disease and, and not to say that um, cancer treatment uh, uh, doesn't lead to heart disease, but that is certainly there. But if the first diagnosis is cancer, then that's how we usually do it uh, from a uh, statistic standpoint. Okay, and you could see that uh, in the, uh, the uh, usually majority population now still, uh, at least in New Mexico, um, heart disease remain number one, uh, and then um, in the Hispanic population. Uh, and the African, uh, the Asian Pacific Islanders, it had already switched over. All right. So if we look nationally, and we say, well, what percentage of this population actually has heart disease uh, com uh, compared to the uh, um, uh, the, the total population? Uh, and so we just take the uh, non-Hispanic whites. Um, it's about eleven and a half percent. Asians routinely come out at the lowest end, okay? But they said it was stable. They said this was also decreasing, but I showed you data that it's really not. It's actually going up, 
Okay, so uh, that's why I, I actually put the question mark. Uh, we have actual numbers to go with that trend going up, uh, and so we still have to make a decision. Um, and the federal government makes a decision by doing what? They put more money into the research to, to take care of it. They, they put more money into the uh, healthcare system to take care of it. The Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, develops programs uh, to take care of these things as well. So uh, I wanted to just kind of give you uh, the, the latest statistics that I could find uh, in terms of national statistics. Uh, and so in nationally, we have heart disease as the leading cause of death, but very close. It's a 23 to 21% with malignant uh, neoplasm uh, and then cerebrovascular disease at number five. But if we look at the specifically the uh, Asian and Pacific Islander population, that is reversed. So cancer is number one. So here you see it as number two. That's uh, it's now in first position, uh, and then those two are reversed. And then um, uh, uh, influenza is actually a fairly significant uh, popular uh, leading cause of death. Um, we don't know exactly what the reason of that. If we look at San Francisco, we have very tightly populated uh, populations that, that live very tight uh, together. So uh, that, that may be a cause for having uh, more influenza. Uh, so the closer you are and the more in contact you are with, with other people, you can uh, spread it a whole lot uh, easier. Again, uh, cerebrovascular disease is here. And... Um, uh, one of the things uh, is that um, diabetes uh, remains uh, uh, over here. Now, one thing I just wanted uh, to mention because it caught my eye was uh, this is 2017. And if you look at here, the first nine causes of death, and we know that uh, from the slides that I showed you earlier, Asians and Hispanics seem to lead the way in terms of things that are happening. What do you see here that is new, that is not in any of these other causes of death? This cause uh, at number nine and this at number eight was actually intentional self-harm suicide. So probably uh, needing to, uh, in the next um, a uh, couple of lectures, we're going to have Dr. Lee uh, talk about mental illness uh, in the Asian population, uh, and this may be a very important topic, especially for our population, to deal with, because it's already starting to show up as a leading cause of death within the top ten causes. Okay, so uh, one more look at the major causes of death in males and females of the uh, Asian Pacific Islander, and you can see uh, heart disease and stroke here. Uh, again, um, uh, uh, accidental or unintentional uh, deaths uh, from injury uh, here for men. Uh, diabetes is uh, very prominent here. Um, and then uh, uh, similarly splayed out for women. Okay, now, this is a very busy slide, but I want to walk it through you because uh, this is one of the um, areas of research that the uh, um, people involved with um, uh, studying the Asian subpopulations are very keyed on. 
now. So we have a couple of uh, researchers, especially here uh, in at UCSF. Uh, have you ever heard the name Dr. Alpa Kanaya? She is a, a very highly respected researcher, uh, a clinician researcher uh, who studies the uh, Asian population, but primarily the South Asian population. Okay. And then um, uh, the, the other uh, person down at uh, uh, Stanford is Dr. Latha Palanapian, and they've written several articles on the uh, Asian populations. And then what they consider this, uh, these six uh, subpopulations, Asian Indians, Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, Korean, and Vietnamese, account for 85% of the Asian population um, uh, in any uh, state or in, in the United States. And so they're trying to get uh, data uh, from these things. And there's only select centers that actually collect enough data to break it down into this group. Uh, and so uh, it, it's taught us a lot. Um, uh, so uh, anytime uh, we ask for uh, Asian populations, you could tell. If you're Chinese, you're not Asian Indian, right? So hardly anyone identifies himself as an Asian, unless that's the only box that you can check off on the census, right? And that, that's not the case anymore. So um, what we see, uh, and, and we'll just uh, focus here on uh, all-cause mortality, diseases of the heart, and uh, cerebrovascular diseases or stroke. This is the white population for comparison, and this is the aggregate Asian population. So if we took 100% of Asians, then it would come out to this line. So all-cause mortality, you can see from 2003 to 2011, it's pretty flat. If anything, it's going down very so slightly. You can see that that happen, is happening also in the Chinese population. It's happening in the Filipino population, Japanese population, Vietnamese population, the white population. What's happening to the Asian Indians? It's going up. And one of the things that we look at when we look at age-specific causes uh, uh, is that this group is the only group where between 25 and 44, the leading cause of death in that group and no other is heart disease. Okay? So in, in all the other populations, we look at um, accidents, uh, uh, I mean, young adults either driving too fast, taking drugs, all the other uh, possibilities. Now, when we look at heart disease, it actually is quite similar. So you see the aggregate Asian population is decreasing. Um, we could see that population decrease in the Chinese, Filipino, uh, Japanese, but it's flat to slightly rising in um, the uh, Asian Indian population. And the other thing is that it's similar both in males and females, so it's non-discriminatory. All right? Uh, in this one, however, you see that the Vietnamese population, uh, as with this one, is flat. Okay, so they're not decreasing. They have a good, sizable population uh, here. Malignancies, uh, yeah, it's a little bit splayed out, but... Uh, the Asian Indian population, I see, are particularly uh, 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 concerning because for every single one of these uh, disease uh, states, uh, these three, you see not a decrease or flattening, but a rise 
Okay, so when they talk about uh, Asian uh, uh, heart disease and stroke on the rise, then you have to say, which Asians are you talking about? Okay, where did you get your data? So we, I, I was part of a major study uh, here uh, looking at the Asian population, and then I found out that their population was the San Francisco VA, which is an excellent place, and they have a lot of Asians. 99% of their Asians were Filipino. So it's not something that we would be able to relate to uh, yet, uh, you know, but uh, for the Filipino population, that was a very important piece of information that we're not just talking about Asians in general, we're talking about Filipino Americans, okay? So uh, that's just something to keep in mind when you start reading about Asians are having this or Asians are having that. Uh, yes, which group of Asians are we specifically talking about? And so we could see for neoplasms, uh, Asian uh, Indians are actually on the rise. Uh, uh, it's actually flat to slightly dropping in the uh, Chinese population. Filipino population is actually um, uh, uh, quite uh, flat here for neoplasms. Uh, uh, but the, in the Vietnamese population, uh, for uh, males, it is actually rising. Okay? Uh, and then for uh, strokes, uh, we see that uh, every uh, uh, subpopulation, except for Asian Indians, uh, are, uh, is dropping. Uh, so um, even the, the white population. So uh, that was an a, a important piece of information because when we go in to just look at heart disease and stroke, then we see that. Um, so uh, this is uh, the uh, six major subcategories of Asians. Uh, with the yellow line here being uh, the uh, white population, okay? And you can see that when you compare uh, the Asian population, which is splayed out all around the white population, the Asian Indian population is the highest, primarily because they start the youngest, okay? They're starting at the age group of 25 to 45, most of these uh, uh, heart disease um, uh, are, are be, uh, for um, uh, beginning at age 45. Um, the, the blue line or the purple line that's kind of hiding behind the uh, Asian, uh, the, the white, is actually Filipino. So when we uh, summarize all this data, we say that Asian Indians and Filipinos are at the highest risk of having cardiovascular disease because they're exceeding what we consider to be the standard. Um, and so uh, the Chinese population is down here. Uh, you can see that down here. And uh, uh, Vietnamese uh, and the Korean population is down here. They do come together uh, as people get older. Uh, so they only separate out when they're uh, much younger. All right, and so this is uh, women, this is men. So you can see the same uh, kind of distribution for stroke, okay? So uh, the uh, stroke uh, population, uh, again, Asian Indians are uh, at the highest, and as we get older, it uh, seems to be that they have a little bit less, but they uh, start uh, very young uh, as well. Uh, and then uh, the Vietnamese, uh, the entire trend is, uh, as they get older, is slightly less, but the, the population as it gets older is actually uh, seeing a lot more. Um, 
this one is actually quite significant here, um, uh, is that if you look at the male population uh, and stroke in the male population, the white population has had a pretty steady uh, uh, amount of uh, stroke throughout their lifetime. Okay? The younger Asians actually have a lot more. Okay? And then as we get older, then there's slightly less. Okay? But this is a significant problem because this is a disparity that we, at this point in time, don't know how to explain. Okay? There's either something, uh, we usually like to say in the food first, uh, but there's something going on that are putting uh, Asians at higher risk for having stroke uh, at younger ages um, and uh, cardiovascular disease uh, for the Asian uh, Indian population. Okay, uh, so I wanted to uh, just bring up this slide. It wasn't the exact slide that I uh, learned this information from, uh, but it, it, it certainly will uh, suffice. So if we look at strokes in general, there's basically two types. One is the ischemic stroke, and the other one is the intracranial hemorrhage. Uh, that is, so the ischemic stroke I described before, that's where you develop an atherosclerotic plaque inside the artery leading uh, to the brain. Uh, and then at some point in time, it may rupture, and then you may have uh, a, a sudden loss of blood supply to that part of the brain, uh, causing damage to the brain, and that's where you get the inability to move, talk, uh, uh, or uh, get a significant numbness. Uh, and that is also treatable if you can get in in time uh, to use one of the uh, uh, what are called thrombolytic agents so that you can uh, dissolve the clot and actually have complete uh, neurologic recovery with that. And so um, the other kind is an intracranial hemorrhage. Now, the intracranial hemorrhage by far is the most feared uh, stroke uh, because why? what it is is it's a rupture of the artery. Um, uh, and uh, when it ruptures, uh, the only thing you can do is to go in there and actually surgically tie it off if the patient is stable enough and you can get the blood pressure down or just bring down the blood pressure and hope that the patient recovers. Okay, so essentially there's nothing um, interventionally that we can do. And why is that the case? Uh, and so why is that uh, important to discuss here? is that uh, for ischemic strokes, uh, the blue ones here, we see that in white women and in Chinese women uh, are slightly less, and South Asian women is slightly less. And so we see this pattern uh, fairly commonly uh, in uh, the populations that we're looking at over here. Now, when it comes to the intracranial hemorrhage or the artery rupture, we see that Chinese women are at no greater risk than uh, white women, and South Asian women are actually at the least. Now, the usual percentages of ischemic strokes to intracranial strokes, if we took all the strokes that were coming into the hospital, is usually 90% to 10%. Okay? That's the usual distribution if we just look at how many strokes are of the ischemic variety, how many are of the intracranial hemorrhage variety. Now, but if we look at men and we look at uh, 
the same population for ischemic. We see uh, the same distribution, but for intracranial hemorrhage, the highest incidence is in Chinese men, such that if you took national statistics from East Asia, so that means uh, China, Japan, uh, um, uh, the large, and Taiwan, uh, those uh, uh, countries, you actually see that 50% of their strokes are intracranial hemorrhage. Why is that the case? We just don't know. Is it just uh, uncontrolled blood pressure? Uh, uh, we think that that may be the cause, but uh, um, it's uh, not entirely clear yet, and that's still under investigation. Okay? So that's uh, uh, a pretty significant concern. Um, uh, most of the stroke uh, specialists uh, that uh, um, are here uh, uh, in uh, San Francisco are very concerned when they have an Asian patient coming in because uh, they present looking the same, but when you get the CT scan and it shows a major bleed, you really can't do anything. If you see an ischemic area where there's no bleed, but there's an area of damage to the brain, then they can give you the blood thinner, uh, the TPA. Now, why do we go over this in such degree? As because, And why is it that the mortality of heart disease and stroke has really not decreased that much? Because the most common presentation of heart disease and stroke is still the first sudden heart attack or stroke, right? So if the first time you know that someone is sick is when they present with a heart attack, you're already behind the eight ball in terms of trying to take care of them because they already have damage uh, in their heart muscle, they have damage in their brain. All you can do is support them until they start to take care of themselves by themselves. So the best way to treat this, and everyone knows this, the, the wise, uh, honorable physician does, knows this as well, the best way to treat it is to prevent it, right? And so I would be very unkind to you. I just gave you all this depressing information uh, and said, go out and uh, enjoy yourself. Um, <laughs> so uh, there is something that we can uh, do about this. And so uh, the one thing that... Um, the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology did very well, was to come up with proven strategies that can help you to reduce the likelihood of having a heart attack, heart failure, a stroke, uh, and, and even uh, diabetes and uh, uh, some of the complications that may occur with, uh, with some of the cancers. And so they came up with this uh, very catchy phrase called the simple seven. And uh, as I looked at it, I said, well, yeah, it looks simple, but, uh, and we've given it to many of our patients, um, and uh, surveys have been done. How often do people actually use this? You know, it seems simple enough, right? Okay, so this is going to be on your slide deck, so if you want to just uh, uh, take a picture of it and put it on your uh, uh, refrigerator, uh, uh, that'd be the great, uh, best thing to do, and then you could look at it every day. All right, so um, uh, the idea here is that there are some that we have complete control over. Okay, how we eat, whether we lose weight, whether we move at all, 
uh, and whether we stop smoking. Well, some people need help, uh, right? I mean, they need uh, smoking cessation programs. Um, managing blood pressures, you really do need to see uh, a professional at some point in time, either a pharmacist uh, or um, your uh, physician. Controlling cholesterol, uh, ideally, um, uh, we try to lower the bad cholesterol, the LDL, and raise the HDL. So far, uh, and they didn't tie this together, does anyone know the best way to raise good cholesterol? You passed the course, if you can guess. Okay, so, uh, so the best way to do this is by exercise. Okay? Um, you know, even eating correctly doesn't make that big a difference. But if you can actually exercise, and I'm going to tell you how much exercise you need to do, you won't be overwhelmed by it, for sure. Uh, but it uh, can actually raise that uh, HDL by 15%. Okay, and for HDL cholesterol, that's a good amount. Okay, and then finally, reducing blood sugar. Uh, you know, we can eat correctly, we can exercise and everything, but sometimes we need a little uh, medical help. Uh, so these things actually require medical help. These don't. Okay, so I would kind of rearrange them so that these are one, two, three, rather than just part of the circle. Because this, if we look at it every day, we can uh, take care of that. All right, so let me just uh, kind of go over these uh, because there is research to support every single one of these that they work. Okay, so eating right. So everyone's heard of the... DASH diet, which is used for high blood pressure, Mediterranean diet. Uh, I don't know how many people like the Mediterranean diet, but it is recommended uh, to prevent uh, heart disease because it does lower cholesterol and it does raise the uh, uh, HDL cholesterol a little bit. Uh, but, uh, and in fact, uh, it has been compared to the uh, more uh, I guess I would say seasoned um, uh, uh, Asian diet. So the older uh, Chinese uh, rural uh, diet uh, actually uh, is uh, also appropriate uh, as long as it doesn't have too much, uh, as Don likes to say, MSG and soy sauce uh, <laughs> to go along with it to make it taste good. Uh, uh, so, but uh, the, the, the biggest thing is just to eat in moderation with less than uh, 2,000 calories, okay, so that you can have a little bit of weight loss. So you don't have to go crazy and say, you know, I have to wipe out all my cholesterol. I mean, I told that to an, uh, uh, one of my older uh, Chinese women patients because I refuse to give up my rice. I, and, 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 and then uh, uh, and she said, much, uh, and after that she goes, and joke too, for that matter. <laughs> and so that's where you get the highest uh, glycemic uh, insult uh, to your um, system. But um, uh, so uh, uh, white rice, uh, just eat it in moderation. I don't tell anybody that they need to eliminate anything. Now, so uh, the diet portion of it uh, is very simple uh, to follow. Uh, and then uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about losing weight. And that's always the most uh, uh, daunting thing to people is that how can I lose weight? I'm already 50 years old, 60 years old. I mean, losing weight is like starving yourself to death. And it's not true. Okay. The one thing I have to tell you, though, is that with the uh, Asian population, the criteria for obesity is very different than the 
uh, non-Hispanic white population. Okay, so in the United States, all of our uh, criteria for obesity came out of a little place in East United States called Framingham, Massachusetts. And they must have had a fairly good-sized population because uh, their uh, average BMI, uh, which means a BMI is the body mass index, is a height divided by your uh, weight in kilograms, it was 17 to 25 was normal. 25 to 30 was overweight. Greater than 30 was considered obese, and then there were grades of obesity. I mean, you didn't just stop at obese. They had grade, uh, class 2 obesity was greater than 40, and class 3 was greater than 50. And then beyond that, it was just extreme obesity. Okay, so um, uh, now in the Asian population, normal population, normal weight is 17 to 22. Okay, overweight is 23 to 25. Obese is greater than 25. Okay, you can imagine my horror when I stepped on the scale and I figured out my BMI that I was obese by the standard. So I said I'm going to the other standard. Uh, no, uh, so, so uh, the goal here, uh, losing weight, is not to lose a ton of weight. It's only to lose 5 to 8% of your body weight. Okay, so if you are 200 pounds, okay, then you don't want to lose like 100 pounds to get down to a normal weight BMI. You just want to lose about 10 to 20 pounds, okay? So that is a goal that you set up over a year, not a day, okay? So that you can actually work at it. And so, so, so the key here is to be realistic and get an idea of where you want to go. Now, the, when they uh, said to lose weight uh, and saying that uh, more, uh, most Americans over uh, 20 years of age are overweight or obese, that is using even the American standards. So that's actually quite large uh, population. Um, and then 32% uh, of children are overweight or obese as well, and they have their own criteria. But for uh, average adults from 25 on up, uh, we uh, should be using uh, Asian Pacific Islanders, if that is your uh, uh, ethnicity category. Um, and why is that the case? Because research studies have shown that um, Diabetes uh, begins more commonly in the Asian population with a BMI of 23. That's also seen in the um, uh, uh, Asian, South Asian population as well as the East Asian population. Okay? So BMI of 23 is what you're shooting for if you want to be normal weight or less. Um, okay, I don't want to go over too far. Um, uh, so. Uh, the next one is get moving, and this one is the one that I usually spend most of my time with uh, advising my patients, okay? They said, I don't want to go swimming. I don't want to wear running shoes and go out there and make a fool of myself. Um, I said, no, you don't have to do that. I will show you what it is to do moderate exercise, 
All right, and so I, in my clinic, I just say, watch. is moderate exercise, right? So if you can walk and still uh, talk a little bit, all right, that is actually the pace that we consider moderate exercise. Now, according to the American Heart Association, you only need to do 150 minutes a week. So if you break that down into a daily uh, or to a weekly event, that's 30 minutes a day. And get this, you don't have to do it all at once. So you can do 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there, 10 minutes one time, 20 minutes the next time. Mix and match however many times you want to do it, but you want to get about 30 minutes five days a week. Okay? And so, uh, and I said, don't run. You know, if you feel like you've been doing this for months and months and it's getting boring at that pace, you might want to just increase it a little bit, but what they call interval training, meaning speeding up a little bit and then slowing back down. But I tell them only once or twice in that 30 minutes. Okay? And how long do you speed up? I tell them no more than 15 seconds. So if you're trying to go for a minute or like 30 minutes at a high rate of speed, you're going to kill yourself. You know, and, and I think that that's one of those unintentional injuries that males have uh, because they're just doing it too much, right? So the, the one thing is that uh, just get into the, um, uh, the habit of thinking of moderate exercise like just a good little bit faster than a casual walk. You know, if you, uh, and what they say is, if you're just starting to sweat a little bit, breathe a little bit harder, or you find that you can't walk with a friend and talk at the same time, then you're going too fast. Okay? So you should be able to hold a conversation. You should be able to walk and maybe have a little bit of uh, perspiration. Okay? So that's the getting moving part. And uh, what we found uh, is that with those instructions, and, and that's the one thing I check every single time they come in. Now, uh, smoking, obviously, uh, the most recent research has shown that there is no level of smoking that is safe for you. So I have a ton of patients that say, oh, yeah, I used to smoke two, three packs a day. Now I'm down to half a pack a day. And I think maybe by next year I'll be down to five cigarettes a day uh, and possibly even less. And basically, the uh, advice that we have to give them is that no cigarette smoking is safe for you. Okay? Now, we can't say that entirely about uh, the e-cigarettes or vaping uh, uh, that is currently available or whether uh, nicotine in other forms uh, is actually safer for you. Uh, at this point in time, there's a lot of research going on to see what is the risk of actually using other forms of uh, smoking? Uh, managing uh, blood pressures. So, uh, you know, I know that a lot of my uh, uh, Chinese uh, patients will also say, oh, you know, uh, my blood pressure is uh, 180 over uh, 80, uh, and I don't want to take medications forever. So can you just give me... Uh, some pills for a few days and I get it down and then I don't have to worry about it. And that's not usually how we manage blood pressure. Okay, so 
we do a lot of education around that, and it makes it even more, a little more challenging now because uh, so far um, every uh, edition of the uh, uh, guidelines that we use to uh, uh, diagnose uh, and treat high blood pressure has been going down to lower and lower levels. I don't think it's going any lower than this, but normal blood pressure now is, is basically 120 over 80. Uh, what we uh, shoot for is a goal to treat blood pressure down to for the majority of people is less than 130 over 80. Now, that's where some people get very crazy, right? I say, I wake up in the morning, my blood pressure is 170. I take it five minutes later, it's down to 140. I wait another five minutes and it's down back to normal. Okay, so what happens then? The normal body uh, reaction to sleeping and waking up is that the body knows when you're going to wake up. It's called a circadian clock. So it knows when the, the sun comes up and it knows when the sun goes down and when the, two hours before the sun rises. Okay, usually about 3.30, 4 o'clock, if we did blood pressures throughout the day uh, and throughout the night, we actually see that the blood pressure and heart rate start to rise about 4 o'clock. And that's your body hormone saying, wake up soon. Not immediately at 4 o'clock in the morning. But that's why the blood pressure is highest in the morning. So I said, you might take it if you want to in the morning, but ignore that one. Okay, don't worry about it because it's going to be high. All right, take them a few times during the day. Sometimes take it when you're relaxing, uh, ready to go sleep. And don't just sit down, slap it on, and say, I'm not feeling well. And then your blood pressure will be up, I can tell you that. Okay, but if you sit there and, you, and I just tell them, wait uh, seven, eight minutes, and then repeat it again. If it's coming down and you repeat it again, it'll be even lower still. So don't worry about that. And so what do we consider good control of your blood pressure? 50% of your blood pressures are within that target range. Not 100%. If we treated you so that none of your blood pressures were over 120 over 80, everyone would be walking around like this. No energy, dizzy, uh, thinking that they're about to pass out. Okay? So there's a, such a thing as too much blood pressure control. The best blood pressure control has a little bit of fluctuation in it, and that 50% of the blood pressure is within target. Okay, so uh, controlling cholesterol, we tend to use medications for this. Uh, many people like to use uh, diet. Uh, I, I tell you that uh, uh, exercising can actually lower the bad cholesterol about 15% and raise the good cholesterol about 15%, and that's with that. 150 minutes of moderate exercise. That's what it was tested for. Okay, so that has been shown to be effective. So if you say, I don't want to take medicines, let's try this first. Okay, it should have an effect within three months. And that's the recommendation by the Heart Association. Okay? And then finally, reducing blood sugar. Um, why is that the case? Because People who have elevated uh, uh, sugars and diabetes uh, tend to um, uh, have heart disease problems, and they die from heart disease rather than diabetes complications. Okay, so we really focus on that, although the information about actually teach, uh, treating each of the high uh, glucose down to normal has not been that uh, convincing, but 
Um, one of the things that the uh, Food and Drug Administration, the, the national organization that tests for every drug for safety, they said all diabetes drugs now have to be tested for their effects on the heart. And so we've actually discovered two new heart medicines that were originally developed for diabetes, and they work in patients even without diabetes that help the heart. Okay, so that was a very key finding based upon the research that diabetes affects the heart just as much as if you had a heart attack. All right, so uh, for those people who don't like to see so many words and like to see pictures, I got this for you. All right, so this is the same. Now, uh, as I said, uh, one of the things uh, that was concerning is that this has actually been out for the last 10 years. Okay, and we did a survey every other year. How many people are actually doing this? How many people are doing all seven of these? And the, the question uh, to how many people were uh, doing all seven of these, does anyone know the answer? It was like 2%. It was in single digits. Okay, now, not all hope is lost. So we look at the, the young population, okay? And this, so this is uh, 12 to 19. We actually see that um, of the non-Hispanic Asians, they, they actually won the prize, all right? They had 65, uh, close to 64% uh, of the uh, Asians actually had uh, greater than five criteria, okay? They were the best. And then the lowest uh, was the non-Hispanic blacks at, at 35. But then once they became adults, I, I take it like all of you and I. Uh, uh, so you see that uh, they were still ahead, but it's less than 30%. Okay? So getting all seven was like out of the question. So this is what we need to work on because we know that every single one of those things work. And if you put them all together, you can actually reduce heart disease and stroke. Okay? So that's all I have prepared. Thank you very much. And if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. If you have uh, any questions, uh, I put it in the back. I tried not to use a smaller font, but this is uh, the same font with all the other slides. Yes? Can you uh, comment on the uh, study that was done a few months ago that stated, uh, it was a meta-analysis, that stated taking the blood pressure medication at night reduced the spike in the morning when we arise uh, lower in the chest getting a, a CBD uh, so uh, the question was um, uh, whether uh, uh, this one study that mentioned that taking your blood pressure medicines at night uh, was actually uh, helpful in terms of reducing that morning spike. So uh, one of the tools that we've developed for monitoring blood pressure is called a 24-hour blood pressure monitor. And what it does is it takes your blood pressure during the day every 20 minutes okay, while you're awake and then you report to the uh, technician what time you usually go to bed, and then it'll switch the, uh, the frequency of blood pressures to once an hour in the evening when you're supposed to be sleeping so you won't be waking up so much. And what they found is that there are some people that have a, an, a dramatic rise in their morning hormonal surge uh, to wake up. Uh, and so that blood pressure 
uh, could sometimes be quite harmful if it's sustained. Um, what they also found is that if you give blood pressure medicines uh, at night, uh, that it can actually temporize that. Uh, it will actually make that so that it doesn't go as high. What was also another benefit that was found in that is that the studies that looked at that, and what you mentioned was just the last in a series of trials, uh, said that if you take the medicine at night, you see that the blood pressure does drop like it's supposed to, but it drops while you're in sleep and in bed. So the likelihood of getting lightheaded from a low blood pressure reading is markedly decreased because you're not moving around, you're not standing up, you're not sitting, you're not sitting up, right? And so people who take their blood pressure medications in the morning, usually uh, they complain to me about two hours later uh, that they're feeling a little lightheaded, they're feeling a little weak, a little, uh, and so then I just tell them, take it at night before you go to bed. Not just at night. So what, what is the most common understanding? Nighttime begins at dinner, right? So I say, I just take it at dinner. Say, well, we don't want you to do that. What time do you go to bed? If you say you eat dinner and you go to bed, then that's fine, okay? I say, take it when you're ready to get into bed. Then the two hours starts from there, and if you get a low blood pressure drop from the medicine, it'll be while you're sleeping, hopefully not getting up to go to the bathroom. Okay. Other questions? Yes. What about statins? What about statins? Okay. So uh, I know for the Asian population, there's been a big concern. So one uh, complaint that I used to get commonly was, I don't want to be on a medication for the rest of my life. And I said, if I start this, I'll never be able to stop it. And I uh, told them that the literature does not support that. Okay. Uh, the literature supports that if you can get, while you're taking the statin to get it down immediately, if you can exercise uh, and you can bring it down to uh, uh, that level that you want it, and, and we say that um, uh, the uh, American Heart Association has uh, established standards, if you have heart problems or you don't have heart problems, what we should get the level down to. And you could do that without uh, medications, then I will lower the dose or even eliminate it. Now, the other concern that uh, Asians have a lot is that um, they're concerned that statins actually affect the liver. Uh, and there's a lot of hepatitis and, and other liver diseases in the Asian population. In fact, um, the effect on uh, uh, liver uh, is actually quite low. Uh, but the, the recommendation is once you start one of these medications is to check a liver function test uh, in three months. Uh, and if there's no problem, then it's very unlikely that you're going to develop uh, uh, hepatitis from uh, or destruction of your liver from the medications. Now, on a rare occasion, very rare, um, it can cause uh, muscle inflammation. Uh, and that would be a, a, an indication to stop it. Uh, but uh, a lot of people who uh, start it and say, oh, I have muscle aches and, uh, you know, it's usually in my back and my legs. This is not uncommon with that. But what we found is that if you just exercise uh, or rest it, uh, it will go away. Uh, what we've tried even was stopping the medication, went away, put them, on, put them back on it, and didn't come back. 
So, you know, it's just something that comes and goes. But the, the biggest concern is the one where it actually inflames the, uh, the muscle uh, because then uh, that one will change and then any, any uh, very rare effects on the liver. Okay, yeah. Doctor, for your patients who are uh, statins, uh, how do you feel about them taking something with CoQ10? And does, how does the statin affect the level of that particular enzyme? Do you recommend oil? Excellent. Okay. So the question is, if uh, patients are on a statin, uh, what are my feelings of them going on CoQ10? And I must say, I'm very flexible about that. Um, but and, and there's not a whole lot of guidelines to say that uh, there's uh, 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 an interaction that you have to avoid. Uh, there have been studies that show that if you have uh, muscle aches, the CoQ10 uh, might be very helpful in relieving some of those. Um, some people who take the statins might get a, a mild uh, a GI upset, a nausea. The CoQ10 will also be uh, effective in doing that. I, I have not heard or read of any interactions with CoQ10 that would uh, uh, obscure its use. Okay, and, and I have many patients uh, uh, who say, uh, well, you're only my second doctor. My first doctor is my grandmother. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, yeah, and so they'll, they'll say, you know, I need to take, you know, whatever soup or tea she's making. And I said, that's fine, uh, but let's check you afterwards, and if it didn't do the thing, we'll have to start you on a statin. Uh, and I, then we'll have to do uh, at least what I know works. Okay, so um, we do have all those uh, situations where, now, um, uh, we have to be very careful because uh, there is a, uh, an organization that, that looks at all herbal uh, medications and supplements. And so uh, some of them actually have uh, 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 allowed themselves to be tested and put on their packaging that they have been tested for, uh, for safety and things like that. Uh, the only one dramatic uh, case that I had of someone taking herbs and we didn't know about it uh, was um, uh, a young woman with uh, her baby and they were having cold symptoms and they went to, uh, uh, they didn't go to a, 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 even an herbalist, they just went to the, a nearby store and they picked up some things and, and when they came into the hospital, uh, they were very sick and we tested it uh, for all the American medications that we knew because we didn't know any of the Chinese ones and found that they actually had a, a very potent uh, heart medication uh, levels that were toxic. Uh, and so uh, the ba baby and the mother were very sick for a while. Yeah. So I, I'm very careful about uh, 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 too many herbs uh, in that. And so um, but, uh, just to uh, check it out and uh, mention it uh, to your doctors. I'm, I'm, Western-trained doctors are not very good. We have an alternative uh, medication uh, uh, medicine group here uh, at UCF that, that uh, does look at a lot of the uh, herb supplements that people are on as well. Okay, any other questions? Great, thank you very much. For, oh, yeah, no, what's that? Fish oil? Fish oil, okay. Yeah, so um, uh, fish oil, act, uh, so the question is uh, fish oil. Um, uh, so it's actually had a, a very good uh, uh, reputation for doing one specific thing, uh, and that is lowering triglycerides. That's another body fat. Um, 
triglycerides are one of the body fats that have had a kind of a waxing and waning history because for the longest time we just could not prove that lowering the uh, triglycerides by itself did anything to prevent heart problems. And that was the gold standard. It had to show that there was less heart problems if you took that medication. Um, so standard fish oil is, is pretty much, uh, that's what we worry about, uh, is that you'll run into that. There's recently been a major trial in, uh, going through um, uh, the FDA, which is basically uh, a, a purified uh, fish oil product. Uh, called the SEPA, uh, and it uh, lowers triglycerides as well, okay? And it has been shown to reduce heart disease. So if you like that, um, some patients that I uh, take care of that take a lot of fish oils, they, they wake up in the middle of night smelling like fish. <laughs> so that's why they don't think it's not because they don't think it works. They just don't want to smell like fish and sleeping with somebody. Okay. Yeah. So uh, when I used the treadmill to get in shape, there would be charts based on uh, age of weight to determine your target pulses, see your exercise Um I was also taking high blood pressure meds. I could never seem to reach the target pulse, no matter how hard I exercise. Okay, so the question is, um, if you use the exercise treadmill and it has all these guidelines based upon age uh, and gender, actually, should be uh, as well, um, then, uh, uh, and you have trouble getting up to that, what we call uh, age-predicted maximum heart rate. So... The usual uh, average uh, uh, formula is you take 220, okay, and you subtract your age, and that is the target for uh, a person to achieve uh, on average uh, for 100%. Now, when you're just doing it for exercise, we say shoot for 70% of that. Okay, don't try to go to 90%, just try to go up to 70%. Uh, the average person should be able to do that. If you can't, um, then we have to look at other reasons why you can't. Now, sometimes if you're taking medicines for high blood pressure, uh, some of those medicines can actually slow your heart rate down. And so you can't break through it. You know, you're going to be limited in terms of how high your heart rate can go. Um, so the compensation is you go into your, like I described earlier, just feeling a little shorter breath, uh, you know. Uh, you know, if you like talking to uh, your pet or something, and you can't talk anymore, then you know you're going too fast. Okay. Other things. Yeah. I had some friends that are acupuncturists, uh -huh. and they uh, they mentioned that you know, that acupuncture does help with stroke, but the first two weeks after stroke. Helps cholesterol? No. Well, the stroke. Yeah. Okay. Get a stroke. And then uh, if they do have a stroke, uh, if they get acupuncture within the first two weeks, it helps to minimize the stroke. Okay. So the question is, um, uh, 
the, the use of uh, uh, acupuncture after stroke. And there are some uh, acupuncturists that will actually uh, advocate for uh, intervening as early as possible uh, so that they can um, uh, help uh, in terms of the uh, management of the stroke. Now, for the majority of patients with a stroke, ultimately we will, for ischemic strokes, we will actually be doing the same thing. Uh, we'll be doing what's called secondary prevention, controlling blood pressure, managing your cholesterol, uh, getting you to exercise, uh, um, and uh, if you have uh, elevated sugars, controlling those. Um, uh, so those are the major things that we uh, uh, put you on medications to keep the arteries from um, uh, clot clotting up. And so um, there uh, have been studies looking at um, uh, acupuncture. Uh, sometimes it's relaxing enough that the blood pressure doesn't continue to rise, and so we may not need uh, medications uh, uh, for that uh, as much. Um, we don't want to lower uh, elevated blood pressure in a stroke too rapidly, otherwise the brain can feel like uh, it's being robbed of blood pressure, uh, uh, and so then it'll have other kinds of reactions. The other uh, thing is that I've not seen anything where uh, acupuncture can actually affect any of the uh, cholesterol levels or, or sugar levels or anything like that. Um, but there is uh, uh, an excellent thing that it, it does do in terms of uh, relaxation and uh, preventing nausea. Uh, uh, there are acupressure points as well uh, to help with nausea. So uh, I don't know uh, what the, uh, uh, there's a, actually an uh, acupuncture association uh, and uh, uh, a certification board, uh, whether that is considered a, uh, an indication for um, uh, acupuncture. Do you know, Don? I think, you know, I've had patients tell me, and uh, other acupuncturists tell me, that you can speed up recovery from a stroke in terms of motor function, speech function, whatever, uh, with acupuncture. The problem is that a lot of this is anecdotal, and we don't have good data to research studies that come out that say, hey, you know, this really works. And, you know, there are some studies of sham uh, acupuncture for other uh, types of diseases which show that for certain uh, illnesses they do work, but those studies need to be done. Uh, there's a group being led by my colleague, Dr. Tung Nguyen, uh, who's trying to work with the American uh, College of Traditional Chinese Medicine and the uh, CIS, which is the uh, California Institute for Integrated Studies, trying to uh, converge Eastern and Western medicine. And uh, one of the acupuncturists at the Osher Center trained uh, with uh, ACTM, TCM, and he actually does acupuncture for certain limited uh, uh, situations in the hospital. We're trying to expand that. But unfortunately, UCSF has a huge bureaucracy, and trying to get that through is really hard. I know there is acupuncture uh, going on at uh, Highland General Hospital, actually, and I think there uh, there are more acupuncturing acupuncturists uh, performing acupuncture at the San Francisco General Hospital, but that has yet uh, overcome the hurdles at UCSF. But you know, we we hope that 
that will happen one day, and then we can actually show and prove, you know, uh, how acupuncture or even Chinese herbal medicine can help with certain diseases. Great, gave me my next research project. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, any more questions? All right. Thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.